0: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I hope you're all doing well in the midst of very uncertain times at the moment, but I thank you for joining us on the podcast. I'm your co-host, Shobana Xavier. In each new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, we have a conversation with the author of a new book that is relevant to the field of Islamic studies. In today's episode, we have Professor Edward E. Curtis IV, who is a professor of religious studies, American studies, and Africana Studies, and the Millennium Chair of Liberal Arts at Indiana University of Liberal Arts in Indianapolis, and also the author of the new book, Muslim American Politics and the Future of U.S. Democracy, published by New York University Press. In this book, Dr. Curtis interrogates the limitations of American democracy and liberalism in light of the state's and its various actors, exclusionary politics, and rhetoric that surround Muslim Americans. Curtis argues that the place of Muslim Americans in the narrative and practices of American law, politics, rights, discourse, and much more, must be interrogated. To do so, the book examines various case studies in Muslim American institutions, figures, soldiers, and women who have navigated and negotiated their place within American democracy as citizens, for instance, A Nation of Islam is one such case study that is explored in the book. Curtis considers how the NOI maintained certain forms of American liberalism, such as the use of law and the incurring of capital while challenging others, such as racial and religious logics, as the movement developed. Here, Malcolm X, or Al-Hajj Malik Al-Shabazz, quintessentially models political dissent against American imperialism, precisely of his because of his Islamic ethics and revolutionary politics. His politics continued to be defined in relation to global pan-African movements, as well as revolutionary Muslim state leaders like Egypt's Gamal Abdel Nasser, both in and beyond his involvement in the NOI. Using various other examples from the ways in which Muslim American women's bodies were used by the nation-state to justify foreign policies and interventions to the memorialization of fallen Muslim American soldiers by American politicians such as Colin Powell and Hillary Clinton, Curtis provocatively challenges his readers to contend with the exclusionary, problematic, and complex rhetoric that follows Muslim Americans as a means to construct and sustain American democracy and liberalism, and Muslim Americans' response to this process. The book is a must-read for scholars interested in American politics and Islam, while chapters of the book can also be accessibly used in courses on contemporary Islam, American Islam, religion and politics. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Edward E. Curtis.
1: Hi, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about Muslim American politics and the future of U.S. democracy we have a tradition in new books in Islamic studies that we start our conversation with an autobiographical question. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, um, your academic journey um, and what brought you to writing this particular book.
2: Sure. Well, um, I did not grow up Muslim. Um, I took a class at Kenyon college from Vernon Schubel and read Marshall Hodgson's venture of Islam when I was, uh, 18 years old. And, uh, that was quite life changing. And from that point on, I wanted to learn as much as I could about uh, Islam and the history of Muslims. Uh, And I I decided in graduate school to to focus on um, US Americans, in particular, African Americans, um, who were Muslim. And uh, much of my work since then um, has been about weaving the story of Muslim people into the larger themes of U.S. history. I think um, in some ways Muslim American politics and the future of U.S. democracy is, is, is in tension with the work that I do to sort of include Muslims. Um, I th- in the back of my mind, I hoped that you know, if we started to include Muslims in more US uh, American narratives, that um, that would change a large number of people's views um, on Islam and Muslims. And I do think it has mattered among several liberals. I think it affirms their sense, um, you know, that um, that discrimination against uh, Muslim people should be um, not only avoided, but resisted. But we know that there's a large percentage of the population in the United States um, that is resistant to narratives of inclusion. And increasingly, um, I wanted uh, it came to me that some of my scholarship should take the radical approach of my own political activism and uh, and try to explain why it was that the politics of liberal inclusion just weren't working to make Muslim Americans full citizens in the United States.
1: And that's really the question that you're engaging with in terms of American liberalism and questions of dissent and political engagement. And to get us going, you start um, the book off with the story of the American politician, um, Andre Carson, and this question of the Liberal Bargain. So can you tell us a little bit more about who Andre Carson was and why this figure was kind of pivotal to set us in the tra- trajectory in your book?
2: Yeah, I was really happy to be able to begin the book with Andre Carson's um, story of course, Keith Ellison was the first Muslim elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. But Andre Carson was elected very soon after. And he is, I mean, even though he's well known among politicos, people who follow U.S. politics, he is not as well known, I think, um, uh, beyond his district and beyond you know, the, the political chattering classes. And so I really wanted to tell his story. And it's a remarkable story. I mean, he, he was, you know, he got his interest. He became interested in Islam through, um, uh, hip hop and in particular, a 5% nation of Islam, um, um, related, uh, music and then, uh, converted eventually to Sunni Islam and became aligned with the WD Muhammad, uh, community here in, um, in Indianapolis And married the daughter of one of the first elected Muslim judges, David Shaheed, um, Mariyama Shaheed. um, uh, And uh, so it's a remarkable story beyond him, also of a a whole Muslim, of an African-American Muslim family that's very prominent in Indianapolis uh, politics. Uh, So... This is a, a person who really emerged out of his grandmother, ha, had been in Congress, Julia Carson. He frequently accompanied her. She basically raised him or was responsible for raising him because, as he said later, his mother was mentally ill and, and sometimes homeless and not able um, to take care of him. And so, um, you know, uh, Julia Carson, the congresswoman, really took um, Andre uh, Carson, her grandson, um, to her side. And and made sure that he was educated. He was sent to Catholic schools as a as a young boy, um, but he was with her as he as she ran for Congress, and so he was very familiar with politics. Um, he he worked. He got he, he came to work for the Indiana um, the Indiana State Police, and then he and then he worked for. Uh, the The Indiana Department of homeland security uh and so he really came up through law enforcement. He joined the city county Council and then his grandmother passed away um and even though he was young he he decided to um run for office and he He won in that special election and then has been elected ever since for more than uh, a decade now serving the seventh uh i think it's the seventh district the the, the Indianapolis basically most of the city of Indianapolis. So Andre Carson has been he is he's liberal for Indiana, but he just reflects mostly the democratic politics of his district which is a solidly blue district. Um not particularly radical. It's uh racially uh mixed. There's no one uh dominant uh group. Uh, it's divided up mostly black and white um but but others as well. And he um, uh, especially at first, he was very, very careful to try to, um, uh, when it came to issues about which Muslims um, are concerned, to not um, make too many waves. So he really reached out to the Jew- Jewish Community Relations Council on Israel, for example, and even voted for a pro-Israeli resolution, uh, w- which his, uh, which Muslim... Uh, Uh, Muslim uh, constituents, but also Muslims around the country, (laughs) let him know about how displeased they were. Since then, he has come to advocate for a two-state solution um, between Israel and um, Palestine, and it takes a a sort of typically democratic um, approach. He's also been a little bit more left in supporting the human rights of Palestinian children um, and trying to tie U.S. Uh, and has talked about tying us aid to um human rights so uh, he's he's very careful he's cautious he's middle of the road and yet and this is where <laughs> this is where you know this is the qu- kind of transition in the book and yet even he is attacked as fundamentally um as 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 perhaps by the by the far right or really by the right it's no longer far right by the right like senator ted cruz uh, he was attacked in this in a senate hearing as an agent of the muslim brotherhood in the united states as part of a conspiracy to uh bring about the muslim takeover of the country uh This is a remarkable moment um, that I detail in the book when when this is entered into sworn testimony in the Congress that another member of Congress is a traitor to the country, and he's a traitor because of his religion. And even though he has not lost his seat, it shows, it helps me to illustrate the tension that no matter what one does as a Muslim politician or as a Muslim American, no matter how integrated one is, No matter how assimilated one is, how powerful one is, there is still the question of whether or not Muslims are really true Americans. About whether they are traitors. About whether there's something. There's still they still are attacked as being a foreign presence in the country, even though Andre Carson, as an African American, couldn't be a more representative American um, uh, in, in any way, shape. Or form, so that that helps me show then the limits of inclusion, even for those who are powerful. And of course, the book then goes on to show much more uh, serious and horrible violations of Muslim human and civil rights in the United States, and how their citizenship is essentially second class.
1: Yeah, and the examples you use are fascinating. And so I wonder if we could get into some of these examples that really. Um, showcase some of the tension in terms of political engagement and the kind of the ways in which the bodies of um, American Muslims are policed by the state, by policies, by um, legal discourses. The first one that you talk about is A Nation of Islam, which you've um, uh, written a lot about. Um, And one of the things you do in this book particularly is to think about this moment um, kind of, you know, pre the death of Elijah Muhammad and as the Cold War and the um, as Worth Dean Muhammad takes over and really raise these important questions about how do they both maintain these forms of kind of challenging um, American liberalism, quote unquote, but how also there's kind of an institutional transitional moment where they they no longer are you know um, challenging it, but have also kind of become part of it. Um, and so I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah. So I mean, there was if you think about if you go back to the 1950s. And you think about um, the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, The typical American politician, whether Republican or Democrat, was a liberal in that they were defending the rights of uh, of people to free speech, free assembly, property, the things in the Bill of Rights, right, and in the and and more generally associated with um, w- with with the liberalism of the Enlightenment era of the 1700s. They were defending that in contradistinction to communism and socialism. And, um, and, and this is the era, um, that has famously been called the consensus in that there was, you know, very strong, um, uh, support from both Democrats and Republicans, whether it was Dwight Eisenhower or John F Kennedy for defending the American system of liberal ideas. Uh, now in many ways, and I'm not the first to, to argue this, The nation of Islam was perhaps the single most prominent voice of dissent against that liberal consensus in the 1950s and early 1960s, because that consensus was built not only on the idea of opposing uh, socialism and communism. The the liberal consensus was was built, first of all, on the idea that religion— would be something that would be acceptable in religious freedom, religious diversity, so long as it never challenged the state in any fundamental way. So long as the loyalty first and foremost was to the flag of the United States and to the United States nation state and not to the nation of Islam or any other community that would attract uh, people's uh, attention and loyalty. And so and so, first of all, Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam said, no, no, we're not Americans, right? Uh, Malcolm X famously said that, you know, something like the rock, did, <laughs> we didn't land on the rock, the rock landed on us. So first of all, we're not Americans, we're Muslims, which for them meant the same thing as black people. Muslims and black, to be Muslim and to be black was one and the same. Of course, for some listeners, they might say, well, that doesn't sound very Islamic to me, but that's indeed the teachings that they had. They opposed very much the, the quiet endorsement of Christian dominance as part of the Cold War liberal consensus um, and, and, and very much advocated the rights of Muslim prisoners and others to, uh, Using uh, liberal access to the courts, but saying that that um, the saying but but calling out the hypocrisy and saying on the one hand, there was um, there was religious freedom and on the other hand, black Muslims weren't allowed to fast pray, uh, have access to religious materials and meetings in the same way that, that Christians were in prison. Uh, and, and, and in the 1960s, they won some of those uh, cases, both um, in federal and state courts, which became precedent setting. Uh, as, uh, ironically, as buoying the liberal project, as guaranteeing the liberal project. So, so one of the things, as you point out in the book, is uh, I'm trying never to make this a case where there are just a bunch of liberals and a bunch of anti-liberals. Liberalism is so much a part of American rhetoric, American tradition, and American um, structures that it is very hard to be completely against it or not influenced by it in some way, shape or form. Um, it's, it's, it's deep, it's, it's deeply uh, hard to, to, to become divorced from it. Right. So the, so the nation, uh, so the nation of Islam, you know, became this voice of, and then most importantly, as the, in the 1960s, um, and represented more by Muhammad Ali than by Malcolm X and, um, Towards the middle half of the nineteen sixties, the Nation of Islam became a preeminent um, source of opposition to the Vietnam War. And Muhammad Ali's willingness to go to prison and give up his livelihood and his heavyweight crown rather than become be inducted into the US Army was a symbol that there was no more important global symbol. Of opposition to the Vietnam War, and, and of course Ali explained that as saying, you know, I, I'm not going to go and fight other people of color when my people of color, black people, don't have freedom in the United States. And so the, this group was seen as radical. It was followed by the FBI. It was suppressed by the FBI. It was the FBI tried to tear it apart through its counterintelligence program. In the uh, Johnson and Nixon administrations, they did not succeed. Uh, uh, they may have altered some parts of it, but but what's interesting about it being radical? It was radical in its ideas. It was not offering any kind of direct military or criminal opposition to the nation state. It was all on the battlefield of ideas, and those ideas of dissent were so powerful that the federal government was willing to violate its own. Uh, supposed commitment to um, rights for all in order to shut down, to repress the, the movement or at least to blunt its impact and power. And that's, and again, one of the other lessons is that liberalism doesn't extend oftentimes to all people, and the people ever since the beginning of the United States have not often included Muslims or african Americans they don't they, they don't qualify as people in the same way that other people do and and so that example shows how on the one hand yes the nation of Islam does adopt some of the um, the the narrative of individual freedom and freedom of religion freedom of property. Um, and on the other hand, uh, it also very much struggles against the American liberal project, which promises to bring freedom to everyone across the globe. Against uh, you know, uh, making great sacrifices to overcome communism and socialism, so that you know liberalism or freedom may may uh, ring um, across the globe, including in Vietnam. The other way in which the liberalism of the nation of Islam was conservative um, and it was its enforcement of gender and um, sexual boundaries and identities. So it was a deeply um, uh, patriarchal, uh, deeply heterosexual uh, movement um, that elevated patriarchy and heteronormativity to um, the highest rank of Islamic values, uh, being as, as synonymous with being a Muslim. Um, as we know from the scholarship of so many, um, or from several, I should say from several people that patriarchy was actually, um, was a, was resisted by some women in the movement. It was also dealt with in a kind of, in a bargain women who consciously went into the movement and and decided who would resist some, accept others, negotiate, overall support the movement because it gave it gave them more than it took from them. Um, but overall you know there's no doubt that, that at the leadership level, including the w- women who were in leadership, this was a, a, a patriarchal movement and that was a very typical bourgeois liberal um, form of polit- a political community this gendered um, this gendered community that, that sustained heteronormativity. So it didn't challenge uh, that, but sustained it. Uh, and still they were seen as radical by the federal government and by many Americans, both black and white liberals, um, because uh, that form of of Patriarchy and heteronormativity was clothed with veils and bow ties and in suits that were not seen as typically American but were seen as foreign manifestations on American soil.
1: And that's really, I think, that, that the discussion in this chapter around gender and sexuality and then capitalism is really fascinating. And then this really sets us up to go to uh, Malcolm X because I think Malcolm X is a really fascinating example that you discuss in terms of how he embodies maybe the ideal example of dissenting um, um, by being a Muslim American and responding to liberalism and how he really grow, outgrows um, the nation of Islam because it wasn't revolutionary enough, despite the fact that he had issues with Elijah Muhammad. So how do you place Malcolm X in all of the discussion that you're having, particularly around um, nation of Islam, but also broadly around this question of American Muslim politics?
2: Yes. So Malcolm X is at the center of the book in many ways. I mean, there's no more important uh, voice of resistance to Muslim American liberalism than Malcolm X, um, for me at least. And um, I think, you know, because he recognizes the problem of the of the Muslim American liberal bargain he he knows that or he, uh, uh, he knows that until the us ceases to be an empire ceases to conduct military to control the political destinies of what today we would call the global south which he called the dark world until that time there would never be freedom not only for muslims around the world but also for americans because any american who was tagging associated with um, being uh, foreign to the a white supremacy in the United States, would never be able to achieve full equality in the United States. He linked domestic liberty to, to foreign uh, intervention, and that was very, very important important, I think. And his example still calls out to us because we still very much live in the world in which he lived. And and American power abroad has only grown since then. In the 1960s, American power was checked by the Soviet Union. Now, we've seen in places how U.S. direct U uh, S military power is limited. I mean, no power is unlimited, but the United States is, is, is arguably more powerful in military um, ways today uh, than it was in the 1960s with the absence of the, without the Soviet union here today. And so, and so he knew that. And then he, he also knew, he also knew that um, he could not abandon um other African Americans and just focus on Muslim uh, liberation. Because, and so his politics were much more akin to those of Gamal Abdel Nasser than they were to um, some of his uh, friends in the Muslim Brotherhood movement, um, like Saeed Ramadan, who focused on individual more liberal kind of miracle narratives. If everyone would just convert to Islam, um, we would, and uh, we could, uh, and this is unfair to Sayyid Ramadan, but this is what, this is what Malcolm X said about his, you know, you can't expect, you can't expect this to solve the problems. The problem goes beyond that kind of religion. He said, where the, the religion of Islam that he, was, that he was advocating and that he came to really identify with as he studied under the guise of the Supreme Council of Islamic Affairs in Cairo, Egypt, um, was that um, Muslims should care about the liberation of all, whether they're Muslim or not. That's what the ethics of Islam required, he said. And so he also, in order to be a good Muslim, then uh, you, you had to also uh, focus on um, – Uh, You had to focus on the liberation of black people all over the world, uh, including the United States. That was the kind of radical solidarity um, that Malcolm X believed Islam preached as a uh, religious obligation. It was also very politically pragmatic and visionary for our own time, in that what we have seen over and over again is until. and until everyone is free, no one is truly free, because if anyone can be tagged as somehow outside of the body politic, as foreign to the body politic, as a lesser racial class, then their basic human rights are vulnerable.
1: And so um, from Malcolm X, one of the things that you do is kind of you take a little bit of a shift um, and really thinking about um the role of Muslim women, but also, you know, the everyday embodied experience and kind of also the transnational experience uh, based on a lot of the work that Zarina Garwal has done. Um, and in chapter four, you introduce us to, um, and I know they are pseudonyms, but the stories, broader stories of Kelly, Ellen, Bayun, and Khadija, and these stories are used to kind of tell the the narrative of what happens when there's movement and transnational um, engagement with, um, with other parts of, quote unquote, the Muslim world involved and when women are um, at the center of those experiences. So can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to do um, this kind of more of an ethnographic or interview process for this chapter and what your experiences was and what you're trying to get at um, really in these stories that you're telling us?
2: yes so uh, in many ways this um the inclusion of this chapter illustrates the um idea that i mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that that my scholarship before this book was sometimes focused on including Muslims into, um, the American, uh, narrative and basically, uh, you know, sort of furthering this kind of, um, oh, oh, Muslims are our neighbors, uh, kind of narrative. See, even when, even when, um, Muslim, um, People go abroad and uh, they, they are exposed to uh, foreign ideas. They still maintain their American identities. This was the basic notion. I include it in this book in part because I realize I think it's a lesson in how much liberalism was shaping my own um, research design. Uh, and my own. Um, and I tried to listen to those voices again. And this happens, you do ethnographic work. And then only years later, um, do you realize, um, you, maybe you change your interpretation of it, or you realize why you think it's important. And so in this case, it seemed to me that we were all being, uh, both me and the four, my four interlocutors, we were all being very careful in the way that we were talking to make sure that we would come across as loyal to the united states we didn't want to give people excuses to think that we had we had not and i realized i think in in some ways i mean it shows my own limitations as a scholar um to, to include it but it also but what i also picked up on was a kind of everyday resistance to the dehumanization of american liberal interventions in the Middle East, uh, in Asia, uh, in um, all across the world, uh, in particular war-making and the support of um, uh, Israeli occupation of Palestinian lands. Um, These four women were all uh, very careful to express their loyalty to the United States, Um, but at the same time, they simply um, refused to give up on or um, backpedal on the idea that first of all, Palestinians are living under military occupation and they deserve complete and full freedom. And we should not be supporting the Israeli occupation as Americans. Second of all, that, um, they were, um, uh, they, they also were opposed to the, um, wars in, um, Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and, um, they had different explanations of why it is that Americans would they, most of them fundamentally thought of Americans as good people, but as as and we we hear this a lot, as just misinformed, as having the wrong information and making the wrong decisions based on bad information. because why would an American want to hurt? Um, people in Iraq um, so badly when Iraq really didn't pose a national security threat and had nothing to do with 9 11. Uh, and uh, so, they, um, uh, but for one, for Kelly, I, I vividly remember her only explanation was it must be Satan. This must be a moral failure, <laughs> a failure of the moral imagination on the part of Americans because why else would they do this? Why would good people do bad things like this? Um so there was a real you know a struggle to to understand um to, un- to understand this but then there was also a kind of resistance um i saw in the um everyday living people had different um these four women had different approaches to issues of muslim piety um to the uh different explanations for why they would wear um, scarves hijabs Uh, different explanations for why they prayed either alone or together in congregation. And all of that struck me as the kind of, as capturing the complexity of um, a kind of complex resistance to liberalism's desire to save uh, Muslim women from Muslim men. And, 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 and oftentimes, I mean, what these, these Muslim women um, would um, were, all, all four of them refused to go into the trap of using um a kind of imperial feminism uh and 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 but they oftentimes were not they also times were critics of patriarchy among Muslims, so it's not one thing or the other, and I wanted to capture their resistance to the fe- they, the way in which their bodies were being used to excuse the occupation and, and military action against Muslims abroad, um, but that they also um, that that it was complicated and they were not simply putting up some sort of blind defense of Islam or Muslims. But we're poking, we're pushing, we're questioning against um, patriarchal practices among
1: Muslim communities. It was a very fascinating um, chapter, especially to hear the voices of the women that you spoke to. And I think a lot of this culminates in the final chapter. And I think one of the most provocative chapters of the book is um, really engaging with this question of the myth of the Muslim Fallen Soldier, really raising questions of U.S. foreign policy. Um, And you uh, tell us the stories of um, two individuals, one from 2008, um, Korean Khan, and the way that Colin Powell used his story or his myth. And then you tell us the story of 2016, how Clinton used... um, Kumeyu Mwazam Khan, and the story of the fallen myth, uh, you know, the fallen soldier, and, and the, really the challenge that it poses in and, and the memorialization of these figures to American liberalism across, I think, uh, political lines and, you know, party lines. So, can you say a little bit more about um, what the intention of this chapter is and why you really wanted to conclude with this chapter in particular?
2: Yes. So, for, for me, if you think about um The nation state through a through the lens of religious studies, I mean, we can really use a lot of the same tools we understand um, that we use to understand people's loyalties to their religious community um, when examining the nation state. So I put so I take my religious studies lens. Um, inspired by Robert Bella's civil religion and the scholarship of other people, and try to understand in what way the religious-like devotion of Muslim Americans to the nation state was or was not producing results for them in terms of protecting their liberties. Uh, Because the ultimate sign of, of loyalty and sacrifice is the willingness to shed your blood or to shed the blood of your children in order that the nation might be saved. And there, there is from Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address to the, the memorialization movement in World War I, the blood sacrifice of people um, for the nation state in battle was, uh, became a part and parcel of U.S. public culture and um, deeply symbolic and also overlaid with christian uh, with Christian theology because of the idea of the whole uh, the, the, the whole uh, that they died so that we might live so uh it, it was not an accident it seemed to me for those supporting an idea that went back to um, President Dwight Eisenhower, that we the, the the liberal bargain that if you are willing to salute our flag and support us, no matter what your religious background, and you are willing to die in battle for our nation, then you and people like you need to be honored and your rights respected, and you should be free. And and that was indeed the story. I mean, m- Muslim Americans were hailed their sacrifices on the battlefield were hailed in the elections of 2008 and 2016 by the democratic candidates as as primal examples of what it meant to be an american and they were deeply inspiring to many americans especially liberal or democratic americans who um saw these stories even shed tears i mean um we got. Um, they appeared at the conventions, deeply patriotic speeches, right and and so the. Um, uh, my question was, you know, has this really furthered the 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 rights of of Muslim Americans? Now I know that many people would would will disagree with my conclusion, but my conclusion is that in many ways um, by. Contributing to the US war machine, these sacrifices ultimately make Muslim American freedom and true democracy in the United States impossible. Because as long as the United States maintains its military empire and we're all required to sacrifice for it, um, those of us who are associated with the enemy will never truly be free. We will be surveilled, detained. put in Guantanamo Bay, uh, and even tortured for the sake of the nation state. Uh, and, and I think it was also telling in the last election that even as the, uh, even as this is a deeply inspiring uh, story, right. That still, um, uh, There's still many uh, con- conservatives and, and Trump voters rejected. Um, they said, that's great. That's a great story. Wonderful. But um, it was not at all. In, uh, it, it did not at all make them um, question their support of the Muslim ban. Uh, and so uh, the 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 uh, Things continue to get worse for Muslims, not better, in terms of their human and civil rights. Um, surveillance um, re- remained uh, remained and remains high. Um, typical violations. Uh, we see, in addition to these bans, all kinds of other um, uh, civil rights violations perpetuated by government agencies, not just uh, mass, uh, you know, and person to person. A grassroots kind of uh, discrimination, but structural discrimination uh, coming from the government has increased since uh, 2016. So the, 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 these stories, while inspiring to many of us, are also ultimately uh, legitimating the, um, the current system, which, uh, discriminates against Muslims and makes the freedom of all impossible.
1: And I guess, I mean, after I read this question, I'm sure others feel the same. I mean, you kind of feel um, sad or like, you know, there's no point in how do you defeat the system if the system is so big. Um, And you kind of help us through this in the conclusion um, in terms of, well, what's next? And raise this question of, well, what does dissent look like and what is the way forward? Um, And you bring us to the case study, a very contemporary and um, important one, of the story of um, Linda Saraswar. Um, The Palestinian-American Muslim. Um, And so why do you want to end on this case study and why is this important in terms of um, looking forward beyond the book and the implications of what you're arguing in the book?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, sort of um, uh, um, simply put, going and getting along um, may work for some. Uh, people for some time, but if we really want to make the United States a democracy, we m- we must have a more radical challenge um, to American empire, to American militarism. And to American racism. And I wanted to uh, bring up Linda Sarsour's example, not to um, single her out as uh, the person who should lead this movement, but rather as someone who had taken these uh, positions publicly um, and um, had had actually achieved some amount of success in conventional U.S. politics, in particular um, on the left wing of the Democratic Party with Bernie Sanders, uh, and also what the cost of doing so um, is. So the the cost, of course, she's had multiple death threats against her and her family. Uh, It is not to be undertaken lightly, and even then, she's still a conventional political operative uh, that is operating within um, the U.S. political system, Uh, and um, and some for for some um, Muslim radicals, and she won't be enough, perhaps. But I think that for for many of us, she is her bold activism or, um, the, her willingness to put her body on the line and, um, um, through both direct, you know, action in terms of sit-ins, uh, and marching, but also to a- agitation and consciousness raising is an example of dissent, um, that if not self-congratulatory does represent, um, the most realistic path to change the country. And I think, you know, we are not, we cannot control these outcomes. They are so big, as you say. I mean, the the system is so big and overwhelming, and the patterns are so deeply held. But um, I do think that Linda Sarsour is an example of someone who's simply called to do the work, uh, and 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 do it the best she can.
1: Yeah, and I think ending on her note and the words that you left us with, I think, um, really helps kind of process the case studies. Um, I'm very mindful of your time and also the time that I'm taking from your family. Um, and we, uh, as we conclude, usually what we do is we ask questions about what you're working on next. And um, it seems a bit futile to be asking that these days, um, but I wonder also if that's helpful. Um, and so are there things that you're thinking about next or are you hoping just to take a break? Cause you, um, you know, cause you deserve it. <laughs> what, what are things um, looking like?
2: I am knee deep. I am knee deep in a, um, <laughs> In a history of Syrian Muslims in the American Midwest, the people who worked the, the Barker Railroad Car Factory in Michigan City, Indiana, and established a Shia mosque there, the folks who who, who went out to North Dakota and South Dakota and became dry wheat farmers um, and established the, the mosque in Ross, North Dakota. Um, I want, I'm writing a history of them, a social history to recapture what their day-to-day lives were like. And I'm really enjoying, uh, being in the archives. Uh, so much has been digitized, so much has changed since I was trained in the 1990s. So much more is available now to understand, uh, to understand their lives. And I've also launched an Arab Indianapolis project. It's uh, about both Muslims and Christians who came here in the 1890s. Um, and I just discovered, for example, Two days ago, that the historic heart of Arab Indianapolis is currently situated under Lucas Oil Stadium, the home of the Indianapolis Colts. And so, I'm going to be doing. I do, um, even though this is sort of going back to my uh, other uh, project of including um, uh, Muslims and and others in um, U.S. history, weaving them into the major themes. I do think that there is a especially in 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 troubling times like we are uh, for me at least uh discovering their stories understanding their lives and all their complexity um and not necessarily putting religion first but putting these people first is um is bringing me a great deal of inspiration and hope
1: it's beautiful yeah and i'm so grateful for your work i've you know been reading it as a grad student till now and so it's truly an honor to have spoken to you and even more so, um, particularly as so many things are going on. So I appreciate these conversations um, even more. So I thank you and your family, especially for um, helping arrange this conversation. And I hope, um, wish you all the best in the days ahead as well.
2: Thank you very much. I really appreciate your attention to the book. And um, it's a real honor to talk with you. And I wish you and yours well too
0: that was my conversation with Edward E. Curtis about his book, Muslim American Politics and the Future of U.S. Democracy. Thank you so much for joining us um, and listening to the conversation. And um, I wish you and yours all the best uh, for the days ahead. Um, wish you much health and safety.